It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, Psalm 22. Uh, super excited about uh, this name. This is the one uh, that I've been in one sense, anticipating, uh, because it is probably, of all the names, probably the most odd of the names I'm going to be looking at, at least foreseeable. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to look at uh, the name, The Worm, uh, which uh, is pretty exciting. So we are uh, going to be looking at the, uh, the idea of the crim- crimson or scarlet <clears throat> uh, worm. And even just to set up the set up the scene in Matthew 27, Jesus is on the cross and he makes this declaration. It says that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Uh, it's interesting as you look at that passage, uh, and there's been a lot of reasoning of what you can do with, uh, with, with what Jesus is saying, but it is a clear indication that he is quoting back uh, to Psalm 22. Uh, in other words, one of the ways that the, the Jews would know um, the Psalms is by the very first line of the Psalm. And so as you get into Psalm 22 then, the very first line of Psalm 22 is that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's this incredible thought <clears throat> that a thousand years before the cross, here's David writing Psalm 22 and in explicit detail is describing the events of the cross. And obviously, it's a very clear messianic uh, psalm. So I just want to read one little section for you from Psalm 22. Uh, and again, if you had time later today, I'd encourage you to read the entire psalm. Uh, but the, again, the whole psalm is a messianic psalm. It's talking about the cross and what Jesus is about to do. But look at what David writes in verse 14 through 18. Speaking of the Messiah, he says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. So just imagine the crucifixion scene here. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, we've talked about this before, but isn't it an incredible scene? Uh, here's Jesus on the cross. He's declaring, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the Jews who would have known the Psalms, <clears throat> do you realize that Psalm 22 would have been deposited in their head? Immediately, the entire scene would start showing up. And if you could imagine the crucifixion scene, the, the events of Psalm 22 are playing out right before them. They are casting lots for his garments. Uh, he is pierced with his hands and his feet. His heart has melted like wax, right? It is, it is he's really, uh, sweating drops of blood. And so Psalm 22 is, is literally just highlighted uh, in the scene in front of them. In verse 6, it's interesting that in Psalm 22, verse 6, <clears throat> right in the middle of all this, this is what David writes. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by people. Isn't that an interesting statement? I am a worm and no man. Of all the animals to choose from, <laughs> this has to be the most humbling. Uh, because worms are not impressive. Uh, worms are gross uh, for a lot of people. I mean, worms are just, they're worms. And yet here is David saying, I'm a worm and no man. Speaking of the coming Messiah, that, that there is, there's, 
that he's a worm. Uh, here's just what a couple commentators say about this. Uh, John Gold- Goldengay says this, a worm is a symbol of insignificance. Uh, Wearsby says, a worm is a creature of the ground, helpless, frail, and unwanted. Isaiah 52, 14 predicted that the Messiah would be t- uh, terribly transfigured uh, by his enemies and not even, and not even look human. And there was, there's nothing actually exciting about Jesus that we, would, uh, that we would draw close to him in the physical sense. Uh, that he is a, a worm. Here, here's what Charles Rolls says. But the Son, Jesus, was made sin for us, detestable, undesirable, a fact which caused that perfect body that was prepared for him to become more marred and mutilated than any other man, says Isaiah 52, 14. So much so that his facial appearance was so transfigured that his bodily form so emaciated that the very semblance of manhood was obliterated. Wherefore, he cries, I am a worm and no man. There is no semblance of manhood in a worm. This statement was looked upon by the early church as a miracle of language, but it is truly a miracle of love that he should dawn to be made sin in all of its hatefulness to the holiness of God. Do you realize that there was nothing desirable in Jesus that we would draw near to him physically? That, that he was a worm. There's nothing significant about a worm. That he is a worm and no man. And yet what's really interesting is you get into Psalm 22 verse 6, <clears throat> that statement that I am a worm and no man. The worm is not just any kind of a worm. Uh, so you go back in your backyard and you, you start digging for worms. It's not one of those kind of worms. And this just tickles me because I, I love this thought. The worm that it's referring to is a crimson worm. <clears throat> now in Hebrew, there are two main words for a worm. Uh, and the word used in Psalm <clears throat> excuse me, 22, verse 6, is not the common word for a worm, but rather it's the word that denotes a scarlet or a crimson word. Now, as you get into the idea of a crimson or a scarlet worm, the profundity of the fact that the Messiah is called a worm is, I think, so significant and profound. And uh, so I, I pulled this from a website talking about the crimson worm, but let me just walk through this. Uh, the crimson worm, which scientific name I cannot pronounce, uh, looks more like a grub than a worm. And then here's kind of like the life uh, of, of a crimson worm. <clears throat> when the female crimson worm is ready to lay her eggs, which happens only once in her life, she climbs up a tree or a fence and attaches herself to it permanently. With her body attached to the wooden tree, a hard crimson shell forms. It is a shell so hard and so secure to the wood that it can only be removed by tearing apart the body, which would kill the worm. The female worm lays her eggs under her body, under the protective shell. When the larvae hatch, they remain under the mother's protective shell so the baby worms can feed on the living body of the mother worm. And for a lot of people, they say it happens for three days. After three days, the mother worm dies and her body excretes a crimson or scarlet dye that stains the wood to which she's attached and her baby worms. The baby worms remain crimson color for the entire lives. Thereby, they are identified as crimson worms. On day four, the tail of the mother worm pulls up into her head, forming a heart-shaped body that is no longer crimson, but is rather turned into a snow-white wax that looks like a patch of wool on the tree or a fence. It then begins to flake off and drops to the ground looking like snow. Isn't this interesting? Uh, in biblical times, the red dye excreted from the crimson worm 
While still red and attached to the tree, the worm's body and shell were scraped off and used to make what is called royal red dye. The waxy material is used to make high-quality shellac, used in the Middle East as a wood preserver, and the remains of the crimson worm are also used in medicines that help regulate the human heart. Which was a lot more than I ever knew about a crimson worm. <laughs> Isn't that an incredible picture, though? Just, just ponder this idea. Here's this little mother crimson worm. Crawls up and embeds herself permanently in the, in the bark of a tree, on a, on a tree. Like I, I think the parallels are way too significant. I mean, I, I, there's no way this is a coincidence, right? I, I think God purposely made the crimson worm for a reason. So here she is, she's embedded, and she has this harder shell, and she allows the next generation to literally, she allows her life to be the life for the next generation. That she, They get a feed on her, and then her blood literally coats them, and they are covered by her blood. Isn't this a beautiful thought? That the ones that she is giving life to are actually covered by the blood of, a, of the scarlet worm, and they actually find life through the death of the, of the mother. And again, you know, there's this splot on the uh, red splotch on the, on the bark of a tree, and therefore they just scrape it off, and they make the dye for the antiquity cloth dealers uh, with scarlet dye. And then I think the, the side or the, the second Terry thing of this, I think is beautiful, is the fact that on the fourth day, her little body squishes up supposedly in the shape of a heart and then becomes white. And in light of all of that, I just want you to listen to a passage. I think uh, whether or not Isaiah is actually referencing or pointing to this, I don't know if it even matters. But I just want you to listen to this because you, you hear the same concept in a very beautiful sense in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Come now and let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Isn't that beautiful? And obviously, if God's speaking this, uh, he knows his little scarlet worms. So whether, whether or not uh, Isaiah is recording this and, and God's pointing purposely to a scarlet you know, worm or not, the, the, the concept is still in the passage. Uh, listen to what Spurgeon said about all this. He says, There's a little red worm which seems to be nothing else but blood. When it is crushed, it seems all gone except a blood stain. And the Savior, in the deep humiliation of his spirit, compares himself to that little red worm. How true it is that he made himself of no reputation for our sakes. He emptied himself of all of his glory. And if there be any glory natural to manhood, he emptied himself even of that. Not only the glories of his Godhead, but the honors of his manhood. He laid aside that it might be seen that though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. Uh, what I want to do then <clears throat> for, for just kind of this study is I want to look at just a couple of places where this word scarlet worm shows up. Uh, it's really interesting uh, just in preparation for this. Um, I knew two of them. Because uh, it's the two that I typically reference. Uh, but as I was going through, I was like, that is fascinating. Uh, for example, we're not going to look at this one. Uh, but uh, Judah, right, has sexual relations with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. And again, that's a big soap opera. Uh, but Tamar's pregnant. She has twins. And the first one, he's on his way out. And his hand comes out. And so they tie a scarlet thread around his hand. And then he pulls it back in. And then Perez sneaks out. And they give him the name Perez because he broke through before his brother, even though his brother had a handout first, right? But there's a scarlet thread, and it's that word. It's the scarlet worm uh, that they tied around his, around his wrist. 
which I think is really fascinating. Uh, this word just keeps popping up in a variety of places. Uh, one of them, which I never thought of before. Uh, oh, by the way, that word too uh, shows up, which is really awkward, in the, uh, the manna scene. If you remember the, the, with the manna, uh, here they are wandering the wilderness. And <clears throat> if you kept any of the manna for the second day, it said that it would literally grow worms. And the worm that is mentioned in the manna is that word for the scarlet worm, which I think is, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I find that so incredibly fascinating. Uh, but one of the places that she's, I think this is amazing, is on the priestly robe and on the tabernacle veil. So when you look at in Exodus, uh, here's God giving clear commands of here's, here's how to build a tabernacle. Uh, here's how you're to adorn uh, the things in the tabernacle and the priests. So as they're building the garments for Aaron and his sons, the priests, uh, listen what it says in Exodus 39 about the robe uh, that the high priest would wear. It says, then he made the robe of ephah of of woven uh, work entirely of blue. And the opening of that robe was at top in the center as the opening of a coat of mail with a binding all around its opening so that it would not be torn. They made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet. That word scarlet is actually the term, the scarlet worm, which is why in, uh, the material word is in italics. Uh, so they made the pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet and twisted linen of the hem of the robe. And in the sash was a fine twisted linen, a blue and purple and scarlet material, the work of the weaver, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. So it's really interesting. Uh, here's the high priest. And how is the high priest marked? The high priest is marked by blue and purple and scarlet. And if you think back, how do they make scarlet thread? How do they make the scarlet cloth? Well, they took it from a crimson worm and they, you know, they crushed the little worm and took the blood stuff and they dyed the wool and they made scarlet wool. And so here's the high priest then, and he's adorned in blue and purple and scarlet, scarlet coming from this little worm. Isn't that beautiful? So the high priest, the one who is doing the intercession between the people of God and God, he's wearing scarlet. And we know Jesus is that great high priest, which means he's adorned in this beauty of blue and purple and scarlet. Uh, speaking of the veil uh, of, the, of the tabernacle and the temple, Exodus 26, it says, You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be with cherubim and the work of a skillful designer. And then listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews 10, 19 through 20, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us, through the veil that is his flesh. So the writer of Hebrews says, here's the veil of the tabernacle. And yes, that was a literal veil. Yes, it was actually made of of cloth. But do you realize that the, the linen of the tabernacle is a picture of the flesh of Christ. And I mentioned this before, but isn't it a beautiful thought that here's Jesus on the cross and he's beaten and he's scourged and you realize that his body color would have been blue, purple, and scarlet because that's the color that our bodies take when, when, when we are beaten, when we are bruised. Uh, so, so here's Jesus and the veil of the temple is being ripped in two from top to bottom and the, and the coloring of that veil is the same coloring of his body. There's some beauty in that. And that crimson scarlet color in the, in the priestly garments and on the tabernacle was made from this little scarlet worm. Uh, maybe my favorite illustration of all this is, is Rahab. 
uh, you know Rahab from the uh, time of Joshua. And, and Joshua is sending out the two spies to Jericho. And they're going into Jericho to spy out to see, okay, can we take this and what do we need to do? And, and it says in Joshua 2 verse 1, that Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, go and see the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, there's nothing scandalous taking place, but these two Jewish men come into this house, and Rahab is hiding them. And in the midst of this conversation, listen to what Rahab tells these two men. <clears throat> now, it says in verse 8, Now, before they lay down, Rahab came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to those two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Indeed, we heard it and our hearts melted and a courageous spirit no longer rose up in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So now please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have shown loving kindness or hesed to you, that you will also show loving kindness or hesed to my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and preserve my father and my mother, and my brothers and my sisters alive with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it will be when Yahweh gives us the land that we will show hesed, loving kindness and truth to you. Do you hear what Rahab, uh, what, what Rahab is asking for? She says, look, I, I know your God and I've seen his mighty deeds and I, I want in on this which is a beautiful fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12 uh, with the uh, promise to Abraham. And so she says, look, I, I see what God has been doing through you guys. And hey, hey, I will preserve you. I will protect you. Hey, I will keep you safe. Hey, but would you promise me that you will preserve me when you come and you take Jericho? And they said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And what was the sign? What did they give her as the sign of the promise? Look at this. In verse 17, it says that the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread, it's that word for the scarlet worm, in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. So ponder this scene. Uh, Rahab goes to these two men and say, look, Hey, I will protect you. Hey, I'll keep you safe. I, I'll preserve you. Hey, but, but would you do the same for me? And they said, okay, we'll do that. And the sign of that promise, the thing that she had to put in her window was this scarlet cord or the scarlet garment of, of some nature. Isn't it neat to think <clears throat> that when you look at the, the pattern in scripture, you have, here's Israel in, uh, in, in, in Egypt. And how do you get out of slavery in Egypt? Well, it's by the blood of a lamb, which is not accidental, right? It's the Passover lamb. And then they go into the wilderness, and then they go into the promised land. And you begin to see that this pattern shows up over and over, and this is beautifully portrayed in the life of Rahab. Here's Rahab, and she is in bondage. Now, she's not in Egypt, I get it, but it's a pattern. And just as Israel was in bondage to Egypt, just as we are in bondage to sin, what, what, is, what is the... What is the sign of that salvation? How do you get out of Egypt? 
Well, by the blood of a lamb. How do we get out of the bondage to, to, to sin? By the blood of the lamb. But the lamb. And isn't it a beautiful thought that here's Rahab and she's in bondage. What was the sign of her salvation? A scarlet cloth. Well, how is the scarlet cloth made? Well, the scarlet cloth is made by a little scarlet worm that permanently embeds itself on a tree and then gives up its life so that those that are coming after it, that the seed could actually have life. And they are literally covered by the blood of the scarlet worm. And you begin to see that there's this beautiful pattern of this, the, the sign of salvation is the blood. The sign of salvation is the crimson. The sign of salvation is, isn't that a beautiful thought? And so you have this cloth of Rahab that was the sign of her salvation, which was made by a little scarlet worm. I think that's amazing. Uh, one of my other favorite stories of this whole thing is Jonah. Uh, when you follow the story of Jonah, <clears throat> uh, and I keep saying this, but Jonah is not about a fish. Uh, there is a fish in the story of Jonah, but it's like two verses out of the entire book. It's, the story is not about a fish, right? Even though there is a fish, it's not about a fish. Uh, and the whole book is satire, and it's over the top, and it's actually a hilarious book. Uh, but as you're working through the story, and, and you know the story, but as a quick review, uh, here's Jonah, and God says, hey, I want you to be a prophet, and I want you to go up to Nineveh, and I want you to proclaim uh, repentance. I want you to preach repentance. And Jonah's like, there's no way I'm doing that. And part of that is because uh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire was one of the most wicked empires of human history, according to historians. Uh, and if you, if you, we're not going to do it, but if you go back and you look at some of the things that they would do to like the kings and the, and the nations that they would conquer, it was so, it was so evil, like evil, evil. And so here's this nation and Jonah knows <clears throat> that, hey, here's Assyria, they're coming in to conquer the northern kingdom Israel. He, he has no desire for them to repent. So, so what, is, what does he do? Well, rather than go to Nineveh, he runs to Tarshish and gets on the boat and he's, you know, and there's the big storm and they throw him over and the fish eats him. Uh, and then it seems like in the passage, it seems like he's dead. And then he, this fish brings him back up, which must have been a delightful experience. And, and then Jonah makes his way over to Nineveh. And as he gets into Nineveh, uh, here's Jonah, and he preaches. And I think, and I forgot to look it up, but I think the sermon is like seven, maybe it's eight words in Hebrew. And there's, it's not a long speech. This is not a fire and brimstone message. And, uh, and I think it's funny because if you, if you think about how Jonah lives, my guess is he was not very passionate about his message because he ran. So my, my assumption is that he's walking around going, repent if you want to, but you don't have to. But God's going to bring destruction. So he told me you had to repent. But if you don't want to repent, in fact, I encourage you, don't repent. You know? <laughs> because he did want to see them destroyed. <clears throat> and of course, he comes out and uh, it says that the king of Assyria uh, repented, forced everyone to repent. In fact, he, he commanded even the cows to repent, which you got to admit, that's, that's true revival. When not only the people, but the cows begin to repent. <laughs> you know? So we should buy a cow for, for out here. And that way, when we, know, we know that when the Spirit of the Lord is moving, when the cow's like, oh, I repent. <clears throat> I guess we could go down to Chick-fil-A because they do have a cow uh, that walks around. So I guess that could work too. Uh, anyway, so the whole uh, Nineveh repents, mighty movement of God. And, and Jonah comes out and Jonah is ticked off because he does not want them to repent. He, does, he wants to see judgment on these people of Nineveh. So at the very end of the book then, I'm going to read the last verse of chapter 3, and I want to read all of chapter 4, but look, look at this. <clears throat> it says in Jonah, starting verse 3, verse 10, 
that God saw Nineveh's works, that they had turned from their evil way, and there was they repented. So God relented concerning the evil which he had spoken that he would bring upon them. And he did not bring it upon them. But this was a great evil to Jonah. And he became angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, Ah, O Yahweh, was not this my word to myself while I was still in my own land? Therefore, I went ahead to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, and this is that beautiful passage from Exodus 34, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness or hesed, and one whom relents concerning evil. So now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Now pause. Do you realize what Jonah is saying? And I hinted at this at the other message last, I think it was last week when we were looking at Hesed. But here's Jonah and he says, the reason I did not want to preach to those in Assyria is because, God, I knew your heart. I knew your nature. And I just, I just knew that if I go and I preached and they repented, you would actually forgive them. Why? Because you are gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in Hesed. So when you look at the book of Jonah, then the issue of the book is not on a fish. It has nothing to do with a fish. Though there is a fish, it's not about a fish. The whole book of Jonah is about repentance and God's hesed. It's his mercy. And what you begin to see is that here is one of the most evil, corrupt, perverse nations. And because they repented, God, who is compassionate and kind and slow to anger and abounding in hesed, always forgives if you repent. It does not matter how wicked you are. Isn't that an incredibly good news for us? Which means you have not gone so far from God that you cannot repent and he would show you mercy and kindness. Because if he could forgive Nineveh, <laughs> he can forgive any of us. And what ticked Jonah off is the fact that God's nature was good. And Jonah was just frustrated and angry because God is a God of Hesed. And so he's all storming. He goes, God, I just, I just knew it. I knew that if I preached and they repented, you would show mercy. And so he's up on the hillside watching Nineveh to see if they would actually be destroyed. And he is just fuming. So the passage goes on and says this. Yahweh says to Jonah, do you have any good reason to be angry? And of course, the rhetorical answer is No. Because Jonah experienced the mercy of the Lord. He experienced, even in the fish, he experienced the hesed of the Lord. And yet here is, here's Jonah ticked off because Nineveh is having hesed. And it says that Jonah went out from the city and, and sat east of the city. And there he made a booth for himself. And there was a little tent and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So listen to this. Yahweh God appointed a plant. And it came up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his miserable evil. And Jonah was extremely glad about the plant. This is the first time in the entire passage where Jonah is actually happy about something. What is he happy about? A plant. And then it says, But God appointed a worm. And that worm is our scarlet worm. At the breaking of dawn the next day, and it struck or ate the plant, and it dried up. Then it happened that as the sun rose up, that God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun struck down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and asked with all of his soul to die and said, death to me is better than life. Then God said to Jonah, 
do you have any good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Isn't this insane? Then Yahweh said, you had pity on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came to be, uh, which came to be overnight and perished overnight. So should I not have pity on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and the left hand, as well as many cows or animals? It's an interesting story. Uh, here's Jonah, and he's ticked off. He's looking at Nineveh to see when they'll be destroyed. And God's like, why are you angry? And Jonah's like, I'm angry. Yeah, but why? Yeah, do you have any reason to be angry? Yes, I have, I have reason to be angry because you're showing mercy. And so God allows this plant to grow up. And what's interesting is, is most scholars, this is what one of them said, is that it was possibly a castor oil plant, a gourd that grows quite rapidly in hot climates, specifically in the Middle East. And this plant grows to a height of 12 feet and has large leaves. And it kind of makes sense if it's, if it's going to shade Jonah, that's going to be a pretty large plant. And here's what's interesting. I was looking up this because someone had once told me that this was a poisonous plant. And, and he, this is from the Australian NSW government website about castor oil plants. But they say that the castor oil plant contains a toxin called richin, something like that. And it is toxin to humans capable of causing serious illness and death. Flowers, leaves, and especially the seeds are poisonous. So get this scene. Here's Jonah. He's watching the city to be destroyed. He is ticked off. Why? Because God's showing mercy. And so what does God do to Jonah? Shows him mercy, causes this poisonous plant to grow up and give Jonah shade. And the moment that the poisonous plant gives Jonah shade, he finally, for the first time in the entire book, is happy. He's like, oh, finally, some reprieve. And then it says that God appointed this little scarlet worm to go over and eat the poisonous plant. And when the worm eats the plant, the plant dies, and now suddenly Jonah is now ticked off again. And God says, do you have any right to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yes, not only that, I am, I am so angry even unto death, which is a little, seems a little extreme in my head. <laughs> I've never looked at my yard and seen a plant die and go, oh, well, me too. You know, like that's, that's never been my thought. But, but here's Jonah in the, in the midst of this anger and frustration. And, and, and we don't have time to get into this, but as you walk through this last several verses, it's interesting that what God is actually doing is bringing a twist to the whole story and showing not only is there no reason for Jonah to be angry, because if Jonah had the sensitivity to a plant, God's like, why would you be concerned about a plant and you're getting angry that I'm concerned about people? And the fact that they're dying and going to hell and the fact that I'm willing to show mercy and hesed to these 120,000 people. Jonah, there's, this, is, this is irrational. But I want you to see the aha. I want you to see the, the crimson worm picture. Isn't it beautiful that here is a crimson worm that is literally appointed by God to eat the poisonous plant? And I don't know if you see the parallel of that, but do you realize that's actually what Jesus did? That Jesus... The scarlet worm ate the poisonous plant called sin. And there is something about that to me that is just beautiful. That Jesus is, if I may say it this way, he is our great scarlet worm. <clears throat> and as the great scarlet worm, he has really taken it upon himself to eat the poison that we rightly deserve so that through his death, 
we might be covered by his blood and might experience life. That when he is impelled upon a tree, he is giving his own blood and his own life for the life of us. And now we, like the little scarlet worm babies, are covered by his blood and we experience life because of his death. Uh, this is going to sound like a really strange passage in light of this, but, but look at Matthew 20. <clears throat> Matthew 20, Jesus says this, Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says there's an interesting principle in the kingdom of heaven. It's that if you want to be great, you have to become least. If you want to be first, you got to be last. And do you realize that of, of the entire kingdom, he is the greatest of all? And yet, what did he do? Psalm 22, verse 6, I am a worm and no man. That he actually came and was the least. As he says, I, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and give my life as a ransom to many. So here you have the great one who actually becomes a scarlet worm so that even the principle of the kingdom of heaven might be seen in the fact that it, the greatest is actually the least, which is, which is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to this. Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, or may I say a worm, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize that here is Jesus who is the greatest one? And yet he stooped and became a slave, a servant, a worm, and he became least. And yet we know that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the great and lifted up one, even though he is weak and insignificant as a, as a little worm. I love that picture of Jesus, that he is this scarlet worm on our behalf. And do you realize that just as Jesus stooped and stepped down off of his pedestal and became as least as a slave, do you realize that is the calling that Jesus gives us in the Gospels? Uh, that is what Paul is calling us to, that, that we are not to make ourselves great. We're actually to allow God in his strength to showcase himself through our weakness, that, that we should humble ourselves, that, 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 that we should stoop, that we should serve. And Jesus says, hey, if if the, if the master, if the teacher is willing to come and serve, how much more the student? I love the fact that Jesus is not just any kind of worm out in the garden, but he is a scarlet crimson worm that gives his life for us. And can I encourage, for just in terms of a practical point, just as he was willing to go low, could, could I encourage all of us to embrace the humility because surely us walking in humility is nothing like the God of the universe becoming man. That is, that is such a stooping, that is such a lowering, that is, that is such a becoming nothing 
I mean, it's like you becoming a worm. And yet because of his great love, he became a worm on our behalf. I love that. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do thank you that you are the great scarlet worm. That somehow you chose in your creation to create a little tiny worm that would embed itself permanently upon a tree, that would actually give up its life for the sake of its seed. That it would actually cover those little babies with the blood and, and those babies would be forever marked by the blood of the mother. Lord, that's a phenomenal picture of a believer that we experience life because of your death. We, we are covered by your blood and we are forever marked by the ones who are covered. And Lord, I'm just awestruck by the fact that you, as the scarlet worm, were the one that was so willing to eat the poisonous plant And though you died, it actually brought forth life for us. That, Lord, that you stooped and you humbled yourself and you became least, even though you are the greatest. And you didn't just merely talk about the nature of the kingdom, you you lived it out. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just be, that we would follow that example, that that because of your life within us, that, that we would stoop and that we would bend and that we would be willing to embrace the weakness and the least so that you in your greatness could be seen and made much of. And Lord, we do thank you for your sacrifice. Lord, we do thank you that it is because of your blood that we would have life. We do, we do thank you, Lord, that, that you are willing to give up yourself on a tree so that we might live. You are good. You are worthy. We love you, Jesus. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.